Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, brought to you by Canon Plus. This week's episode is a lecture from Dr. George Grant, entitled, After the Thrill, What Keeps Classical Christian Education Going? From the series, Christ, the Lord of Classical Christian Education. Listen to the full series, including another lecture from Dr. Grant and more from Pastor Douglas Wilson. The series is available now on Canon Plus. Oh, Father, we come before you with thanksgiving in our hearts for all that we have learned and heard, for the inspiration that we have received, for the connections that we've made, for the friendships that we've renewed, for the conversations that we've had. Now, we ask you to once again show your kindness to us. We pray, Lord God, that you would even now, meet us here and quicken us. Because, quite frankly, Lord, many of us here at this conference are weary, battle-worn. And so we ask you to fit us for the coming days with an endurance and a strength that is not ours. Lift us up as on eagle's wings. Uh, that we may run and not be weary. For we pray this in the name of the one who gives all power and all strength and all hope for the coming days, the Lord Jesus. Amen and amen. There's nothing that can quite kill vision like discouragement, Opposition, adversity, and failure. Part of the reason for that is that, uh, that we in modern America are trained to think that the blessing of God always makes an appearance through the signs of success. <laughs> We are those who are wowed by the power of the lure of successful things. So when, uh, when things go wrong, we tend to, not just emotionally, not just with our feelings and our relations, but even with our theology, we begin to second guess. We wonder if uh, it's not just that the shine is off. We wonder if the blessing of God has been removed. And uh, the problem with that, of course, is that according to the Bible, what we do right may be as dangerous and detrimental to our vision and our energy to carry out that vision as what we do wrong. And indeed, throughout the scriptures, we're reminded again and again and again that all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will face persecution. And that persecution arises from the most horrific corners of our lives, from the people that we care most about, from the people that we most expected would support us, we are frustrated at every turn 
all the time by the very people that we thought would stand with us forever. And that's what's so seemingly discouraging. But at the same time, that is precisely why the Bible hedges our vision. But not with situations and circumstances, but with His Word. With His call. With His promises. And with His Spirit. I have a quote in the notes that uh, that I come back to over and over again. A vision is the ability to see beyond the constraints of present circumstances to the possibilities of the future. It's the hunger to see what is in terms of what ought to be. It's the passion to live life beyond the limits imposed by the tyranny of the urgent. We live in a pragmatic time of expediency, practicality, and sensibility. As a result, the cause of the visionary is all too often seen as little more than a lost cause. Through the ages, however, wise men and women have seen vision for what it is, the hope of the future, the mainspring of progress, and the provocation for success. I mean, think of every heroic story you have ever read or seen on the silver screen. It's really not a very good story if uh, success comes quick and easy, is it? I mean, every great story is the story of overcoming adversity. And part of the reason that that's what makes a good story is that, uh, that it is woven into the fabric of life in this poor fallen world that successes really do come at a great cost. We must overcome overwhelming obstacles and difficulties along the way. That is the way of this world. And ultimately, the successes that uh, that overwhelm the odds are the ones that are the most satisfying. I love it. Uh, there's a great speech by Winston Churchill when he was in his darkest days of exile, out of office and out of power in the 1930s as he saw the rising tide of tyranny in the world and no one would listen. He was marginalized. He was... Uh, <clears throat> In the words of William Manchester, a lion alone. He gave a speech on uh, St. George's Day, which was once almost a national holiday in Britain, though now it is nearly forgotten. And in the speech, he, uh, he, he made light of the way modern bureaucracies uh, 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 approach difficulties, and he imagined what it would be like for a modern bureaucracy to set out to, uh, to go slay a dragon. All the forms that would have to be filled out and all the environmental statements that would ha- have to be uh, made and all of the studies and, uh, and the second and third order consequences that would have to be examined and the committees that would have to be assigned and uh, the budgetary restraints that, uh, that would uh, be imposed upon the enterprise. And it's a, it's, it's a wonderful speech to listen to. But at the end of the speech, Churchill gets very serious, and he says, Do you know how you slay a dragon? 
It's when one man with courage gets close enough to the dragon to smell his breath. It's when one man with courage gets within the reach of his dangerous maw. It's when one man creeps through the dark and moves past his own fears. And he grips the dagger in his sweaty palm. And he plunges it in deep. Knowing that he may never see another day. The fact is, is that we're, we're out slaying dragons. Dragons in our culture, dragons from our past. Dragons that seem to, uh, to creep across timelines from the future. Dragons in the nature of efficiency. Dragons when it comes to dollars and cents and properties and people. And this business of slaying dragons necessitates that we have courage and tenacity across time. If you're tired, if you're weary, if you're wounded, if you're frustrated, welcome to the Club of Champions. Because every champion that has ever lived has felt the same and known the same. And yet, when, uh, when the shine was off and the thrill was gone, they were able to persevere. They were able to persevere for a, a number of different reasons. First and foremost, they understood that the enterprise that was before them was not just an enterprise for me and mine. They realized that what they were about was, um, was bigger than them and bigger than, than anything that they could see. Now, I know that a lot of people are attracted to classical and Christian education because they want something for their kids. I mean, at our school in Franklin, Tennessee, we've had people who have gotten very involved and then they just disappear when their kids graduate. You know, that's, that's, that's n- normal. That's par for the course. But for those of us who really understand classical education, for those of us who understand covenantal succession, for those of us who understand the need to raise up the next generation of leaders, we understand that this is far bigger than our simple little circle. It's not just about me and my kids and my grandkids. It's, it's, it's really about the promise of God to do a work across a thousand generations. To do a work that is so unimaginably large that it is not possible for us to see the outcome. I, uh, I love medieval History and particularly, I love the history of medieval architecture. Anybody who's ever listened to me for more than 15 minutes knows that uh, that I wax rather 
enthusiastic and eloquent about buildings. <laughs> I'm thinking about buildings. If you uh, were to see my moleskin, you'd see sketches of buildings and floor plans and gardens and uh, facades. I, I, I love architecture. But one of the reasons that I love architecture is that early on in my study of history, I realized what a phenomenal feat of human endurance the building of cathedrals actually was. And it was such an alien sort of notion to anything that I'd ever seen. To anything that I thought I might ever see. Can you imagine one day your pastor and the committee for uh, property and budget comes before your congregation and uh, sets before you this vision. We're going to build a new building. We're going to, uh, to start it this next year. And our plan is to wrap up construction in, oh, about 425 years. <laughs> and we want you to give. And not only do we want you to give, uh, we're not going to hire a contractor to do this. And so uh, all of you are going to have to learn how to be stonemasons now. And then you're going to teach your children to be stonemasons, and they're going to teach their children to be stonemasons, and they're going to teach their children to be stonemasons, and they're going to teach their children to be stonemasons, and they may have the opportunity to worship in part of the building that we're going to be building. What an astonishing vision! It's not about me. It's about a declaration that the gospel is true across the ages. We have a vision that goes past our time, past our competency, past our resources, past anything that we can even think or imagine. Why? Uh, because our purpose is not simply to fit our children for great job experiences in the next 15 to 20 years. We're not thinking about portfolios here. We're thinking about the transformation of a culture. We're thinking about the gospel moving forth and changing every single detail of life and experience. We're talking about a reformation that will alter, reform, and restore everything. Ultimately, if we're really serious about this business, we ought to be about leaving a legacy far more than we ought to be about simply constructing a really good curriculum. Raising sufficient scholarship dollars for next year's budget. Finding a way to get the right number of teacher training hours onto the calendar figuring out how to enforce the new dress code regulations. If that's what's consuming us, and to be sure, details are important all along the way, but if that's what's consuming us, then after the thrill is gone, we're going to have a hard time keeping on keeping on. The fact is, is that... Um, 
In order to launch an enterprise as vast, as all-encompassing, as covenantal succession, we need to have both visionaries and managers in our midst. If all we have as our leaders are managers, then we'll have really nice things for me and mine, but it will not last and it will not endure. If all we have is visionaries, then we'll starve to death. (laughs) To pit visionaries against managers is a supreme violation of the biblical idea of a multiplicity of giftings and the division of labor and the necessity to raise up and to exalt in every single calling and gifting. In order to, uh, to make it to another day, we've got to think beyond ourselves. We've got to be constantly giving our ministry away. Because we're slaying dragons, we're uh, we're building cathedrals. Now, uh, that means that in our own lives and in the lives of those around us, we need to make certain that we are laying enduring foundations. And again, this goes way beyond simply coming up with the best textbook choices. It's going to involve being very, very intentional about entering into the messiness of those things called relationships. But the fact is, is that real and substantial relationships through all of the ups and all of the downs and all of the difficulties and getting mad over this and being upset over that, Those relationships are what will, in the end, lay strong foundations. All ministry is personal. You don't make disciples by throwing out ideas. You make disciples by pouring into lives. You make disciples when you begin to recognize strengths and weaknesses, and you appreciate and accept the weaknesses right along with the strengths. That enables us uh, then uh, to, uh, to, to leave a lasting legacy to all of those that we are called to work with. I have founded lots of organizations over the years. In fact, at this conference in the past, I've made the bold confession, uh, saying out loud and over a microphone onto tape uh, that was then later transferred onto uh, CDs for all the world to hear. I, I even have a suspicion that somewhere, somehow, some way, it's made itself to the World Wide Web. Hi, my name is George, and I'm a startaholic. I started lots and lots of things through the years. 
And I have lots and lots of ideas. I'd like to have started about 10,000 more things than I actually have. You should see my notebooks. They're like a lunatic raving. But the one thing that I have discovered through the years is that, um, that in order to really have an impact, there's got to be far more than just my idea. My notion of what is really important, as, as, as nifty and as wonderful as my ideas, the logos that I come up with, the anacronyms that I attach to the names for all of these organizations might be, uh, the bottom line is, is that we've got to have people around us. We have to lay enduring foundations. If you're tired, I understand it goes with the territory. If you feel like you're a classical school widow or widower, uh, because your husband or your wife has just poured everything that they are and everything that they have into the work, I, I completely understand. There are seasons where we have to just slog through the difficulties. But you can't, in the end, do it alone. Gather around yourself the fellowship of the ring. Find your Sam Gamgee. Gather around you those who will hold up your arms, who will walk with you through uh, the, the, the dark days. And in that, you will see the fleshing out of your work. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, there is another thing that uh, seems to create for us a great deal of dismay and ultimately discouragement. And that's mission drift. You ever create a thing and then all of a sudden you wake up one day and you realize this thing is not that thing anymore. This thing has become another thing. And now we've got thing one and thing two. And they're running rampant through the house and tearing things up. Thing one and thing two, this, this happens all the time. Not just out of the madcap imagination of Dr. Seuss. It happens all the time in our best institutions. And the reason is, is it is hard to hold to principle. When the siren song of pragmatism is always uh, just off the starboard side, we um, we are constantly being lured away from what it is that we are called to do, simply uh, because we are told that this. Other thing will work better. This other thing will attract more applications. This other thing will enable us uh, to, uh, to have this kind of certification or to qualify for this scholarship program or this uh, granting agency. You know, we're, we're not called to fit into this world. We're called to be a peculiar people. 
we're called to hold to certain principles. Now, to be sure, in order to take the next step and grow our institutions and enable them ultimately to multiply, because after all, what we really want is not just growth, but multiplication, um, there are things that we will have to do to adjust and to, uh, to change, to uh, bring better expertise and more resources to our institutions. But the greatest battles you will ever face will be the battles over first principles. The harsh realities of fundraising will ultimately cut across the grain of those first principles. And when it comes to be a choice between your principles or abundant, ever-flowing dollars, always choose the principles. Resist the lure. What we do right may well be as dangerous and detrimental to our vision and our energy to carry out that vision as what we do wrong. Now, I've heard Doug Wilson say this before. Uh, success, dollars and numbers are the enemies of our vision. We see this over and over and over again in the Scriptures. We've experienced it in our own lives. I was talking to one of the teachers who has been in Iraq, teaching in the classical school of the Medes in Iraq. And he was talking about how difficult it was to live in Iraq. It's a, it's, it's a rather dangerous place. It's it's not a place where all of the comforts of home are readily available. It's a place where you always feel just slightly on guard, even when you're in the, the midst of the, of the dearest friends of your life. But he's back here now, and he's enjoying all of the comforts of home, only uh, what he's discovered is that the comforts of home are not nearly as comfortable as he once thought they were. I don't know about you, but uh, I have found at times in, in our school in Tennessee that after we've achieved some great success and everybody is singing praises and, oh, isn't this wonderful, I, I have this kind of sinking feeling that, oh, oh dear, what, what did I compromise to get this? Sometimes it's when the thrill is gone that your vision is sharpened as never before. Your principles are brought to real clarity as never before. Don't ever give that up. We are in the midst of slaying dragons, building cathedrals, holding on to those first principles. The Apostle Paul writing to um, the Thessalonians in a time of real difficulty gives them a series of remarkable commands about the, the richness of the grace of God in their lives bearing fruit. And at the heart of the commands, he has two words for them. The first is um, hold on. Hold on to those. Uh, truths which have been preached to you from the beginning. 
and stand fast. Stand fast in the the richness of God's mercy and His grace. Hold on and stand fast. The Greek word that is used for uh, hold on is is a word that literally means grip it for all your life. I always I kind of imagine one of those uh, Merry Melodies cartoons from Saturday mornings. You can see how I was educated. <clears throat> where um, where this, uh, this mouse is holding on to, uh, uh, to a chair leg uh, while the, the cat is mischievously blowing this high-powered fan right at him. And he's, he's just kind of hanging way out and holding on for dear life. That's the picture. The gales of adversity are going to blow. Hold on, the Apostle Paul says. The the, the word that he uses for stand fast is an interesting word. It, It literally means to be rooted into, planted well. It's a word that uh, is the agricultural in origin, and it literally means to send the roots down deep so that uh, when those same gale force winds come blowing, you just simply bend in the wind. We live in a poor, fallen world. God has not called us to do everything. He hasn't called us to fix everything and fix everyone. He's only called us to do what we can do. To, uh, to, to carry out our callings in a small sphere and to live faithfully in that sphere and pass the mantle on to the next generation. That, that's all. We can do this even after the thrill is gone. We can continually enter into the means of grace, practicing covenant renewal at every turn, knowing that it is the Lord himself who will restore our souls, who will calm the uh, waters that have been stirred by circumstances and situations, that we can rest in him. But most of all, I have found when things are most difficult, I have found that the best thing that I can do is not cry out, oh, why, Lord? Simply to humble myself in repentance. I said it in an earlier session. This is the essence of what a real education is, after all, isn't it? Repentance? That's all education can be. It's when we say, I don't know everything that I ought to know. Readily confess. And now I'm going to do something about it. I've not done everything that I ought to do. I readily confess it. Now I'm going to do something about it. I'm not all that I've been called to be. I've... I've fallen at every turn. 
So now I need to read this. I need to work out this problem. I need to, uh, to understand this piece of music. I need to, uh, to study this particular uh, equation. Education is at heart repentance. And the story of, um, of education's advancement through the ages has always been the story of people who have come to the place where they simply repent. Repent. I um, have lots of heroes. And uh, I return to those heroes for inspiration in times of difficulty and distress. Not long ago, I was uh, I was facing the, the grave difficulty of having worked on all week a, a, a brilliant, stunning, scintillating sermon. Only to discover on Sunday morning, when I went into the office to prepare for the services that Sunday morning, that it was a little more than piffle, drivel, and swill. Somewhere between Saturday night and Sunday morning, my perspective changed entirely, and I was in deep distress, looking at my watch, thinking to myself, basically, ah! (laughs) Now, in that moment, I, I could have feverishly turned to the commentaries and stolen some brilliant gem from Spurgeon or Chalmers or... I maybe could have gone online and stolen a whole sermon from Tim Keller. But I thought, no, I did that last week. No, no. <laughs> and um, it, it was at that moment when I, when I despaired of my own competency... And when I repented of my own hubris and pride, when I recognized that that ultimately, even in this difficult providence, God was teaching me that uh, the Spirit fell. I knew the kiss of His grace. I found strength for the hour. And uh, I threw off the shackles of all of my props. That's what we've got to do when we're discouraged, when we're frustrated, when we're tired, when we don't know how we're going to go forward, when we face opposition from our dearest friends, or at least those that we thought were our dearest friends. A few years ago at our school, we had a huge disruption. There was a rift between our headmaster, and the board. And I actually came to the place in the midst of it all where I, I thought to myself, the school is done. And I went to our board and I said, I, I think we just ought to just give the school to him. I don't have a stomach for this fight. I don't want to do this. I love these people. And I don't have the strength to go on. They said, George, we love you. 
And we have followed you. And we want to follow you still. But the answer is no. No. We're going to stand for what is right. And however difficult this day may be, we're going to never allow our mission to drift. And uh, my heart sank. And I looked at these dear friends and I thought, but you don't understand. This is going to be messy and this is going to be ugly. And we're going to lose families and we're going to lose students and we're going to lose friends. And they said, it's worth fighting for. We're not going to give up. <laughs> They made me. And I was not willing, but I followed. And I have to tell you, they were so right. It was hard. We did. We did lose families and we did lose friends. Uh, But one of the things that happened was because we despaired of our own competency, because we walked in humility, we uh, determined never to name call, we we would never uh, return tit for tat, God poured out His blessing. He brought us strength upon strength, and out of the ashes of our despair, He has brought a flowering like we could have never imagined. I don't know that we could have known such joy if we had not suffered such sorrow. That's our story. You know what? Every day is not going to be fun. You know that. Every year is not going to be fun. You know that. Every decade is not going to be fun. (laughs) you even know that. The fact is, is that we're not in this just for us. The Lord God uh, says to us, call unto the nations, beckon them come. Call across the generations, beckon them come. Let them know. There is water for refreshment and hope for the latter years. Francis Brown has written, The age is weary with work and gold, and high hopes wither and memories wane. On hearths and altars the fires are dead, but that brave faith hath not lived in vain. James A. Garfield has said it well. He said, things don't just turn up in this world until someone turns them up. And so, brothers and sisters, I, uh, I just want to encourage you. We're all limping. But that limp is like the limp of Jacob after Peniel, the mark of the touch of God. And so limp on. After the thrill is gone, 
What keeps classical Christian education going? It's simply this. We know God is in it. He's called us something bigger than ourselves. And in the process, He's changing us and our children and our grandchildren. And Lord willing, the culture all around us. So go forward. Slay the dragons. Build a cathedral. And forget about the thermometer in front of the church. The task is far too long to measure in little incremental steps. Let's go forward together. Dragons, beware. Bless you. I'll tell it in brief, because I don't want to... I don't want to belabor this too terribly long, but um, there's a, a, a dining hall. It's actually, amazingly, it's uh, the dining hall that they used for the uh, shots of the big uh, uh, great hall in the Harry Potter films. It's that dining hall. It's a new college in uh, Oxford, which was actually the second college, St. Mary's College, but because there was already a St. Mary's College, they called it New College. Um, and it's uh, just about a thousand years old, so it's really new. <clears throat> but in the 1960s, the uh, elaborately carved oak beams in the dining hall had uh, finally begun to succumb to dry rot. And the trustees of Oxford University and of New College realized that they would have to be replaced. And so they sent out bids to contractors and uh, suppliers, lumber suppliers, throughout the United Kingdom to, uh, to get bids on the stock to replace the beams. They felt like they could find the craftsmen to carve the beams, but uh, they needed the the Woodstock, and they discovered that there were no suppliers in the United Kingdom with a timber large enough or of a high enough quality to actually replace the beams. So they sent out bids and requests all through the European continent, no go. Throughout the United States and North America, no go. Throughout the rest of the world, no go. So the trustees decided that they were going to have to, God forbid, replace the beams with laminate, which was horrifying to them. And there was um, much British hand-wringing over the prospect. Uh, Meanwhile, while all of this is going on, At some stage, a janitor was putzing about in the basement, as janitors are often wont to do. He came across this uh, this leather pouch. And he, uh, he reached into the leather pouch and pulled out these parchments. And lo and behold, they were the original plans for the college. Almost 700 years old. 
Anyway, he's, uh, he's looking at these plans, and all of a sudden, he has this rush of emotion. He, he bundles them all up, and he runs upstairs, and he lays them out on the, uh, on the desk of the dean of students. He's barged into his office, and he says, look at this! The dean looks down at the parchments and he realizes that, that here's a comprehensive plan, not only for uh, the buildings, but all of the gardens as well. And uh, there's a, a systematic table that, that says when things would have to be planted over the course of, uh, of the first 40 years and then the first 100 years and then the first 250 years and there was a notation in a small call-out box near the bottom of the parchment that noted that the beams in the dining hall would probably succumb to dry rot after about 500 years and that when those beams did succumb to the dry rot they were to harvest the oaks that were planted right alongside to the college. And the dean of students um, looks up and out his window, and there is this line of oak trees. And of course, they harvested them quick because this is the early 60s. They probably knew that the late 60s were coming quick upon them. <laughs> they needed that they needed to strike while the iron was hot and before Al Gore had a thought in his head. Which we're still waiting for, apparently. But uh, you imagine planning 500 years ahead? Thinking 500 years ahead? Believing that the building that you had built would be there in 500 years? I mean, how many of us believe that this building, this room, is actually going to be here in 100 years? In 50 years, the eighth wonder of the world, the Astrodome, <laughs> holds go-kart races. It's the venue for the rodeo. And it's fodder for the wrecking ball. And it was just built 40 years ago. This kind of forward vision, this kind of tenacity, is something that is rather alien to us, but it's the kind of vision that we need to inculcate in the hearts and the lives of our children, because after the thrill is gone, what will remain are those enduring foundations. Anyway, that's that story enjoy this episode, be sure to check out the full series, Christ, the Lord of Classical Christian Education, now available on Canon+. Plus.